So we are first of all in Isaiah. Okay, first of all, first of all, we are in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 to 9, and that follows on fantastically with to Matthew chapter 3, the whole of chapter 3. So starting off in Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout out or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what the Lord God, the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open up eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. I see the former things have taken place and the new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Okay, so now flipping across to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Okay, so John. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole regions of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You are a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of those stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I will baptize you with water for repentance, but after me, will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him by saying, I need to be baptised by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. 
Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went out of the water. At that moment, the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Mumford and Sons have a song called Roll Away Your Stone. And it's a song about looking inside and and seeing what you find there. And it goes like this. Roll away your stone, I'll roll away mine. Together we can see what we will find. Don't leave me alone at this time, for I'm afraid of what I will discover inside. You told me that I would find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul, and I have filled this void with things unreal. And all the while, my character, it steals. It's a pretty common human experience to feel an emptiness, like something's missing in life. It's also pretty common to try to fill this void with all sorts of things. Relationships, sport, work, even religion, alcohol. Well, Mumford and Sons, they go on to say that there's not just a hole within, there's something more sinister. They go on to say, darkness is a harsh term, don't you think? And yet it dominates the things I seek. According to this song, the hole we feel in our lives is actually just a symptom of a deeper darkness. Today, in this bit of the Bible, we someone who kind of, sort of has a similar message to this. Matthew 3 begins with John the Baptist in verse 1. Have a look at it with me. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What does John mean by this message? It's um, actually not just John's message, because a bit later on, when John's put in prison, Jesus takes up exactly the same message. So have a look at Matthew 4, 17 there. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. In the book of Matthew, this is the first thing that we hear from both John and from Jesus. So it's pretty, under, it's pretty important that we understand it. But what do they mean by it? Now, in one sense, the, their logic's pretty straightforward, isn't it? The kingdom of heaven is on your doorstep, and this means you should repent. But what's not automatically so straightforward, in my mind is why should the closeness of the kingdom drive people to repentance? Well, it seems to me if we understand what the kingdom is and we understand what repentance is, then we'll probably be able to see how they're related. We get a bit more of an idea of what the kingdom of heaven is from verse 3. Matthew says that John is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness... Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. So when John cries out, Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, Matthew says he's the voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord. So in other words, the kingdom being close means the Lord Himself is close. John the Baptist is telling them God's rule is very close. Do you see why he thinks that should lead them to repentance? 
when my sister was a teenager and my mum and dad were away for a few weeks, um, she was going through a bit of a wild phase at the time, and um, they surprised her by coming home a little bit early, which wasn't exactly welcome. And what they found is that she wasn't ready for them. There were bottles everywhere. There were cigarette holes in the carpet. The garden hose was, was cut up in pieces. This puzzled my mum and dad. I remember them just looking at it, just going, why? Why the garden hose? To them, it was just a random, senseless act of violence. But what was extremely obvious to them was that she'd had a massive party. Now, had she known that my parents were coming back, it probably would have driven her to some kind of action. She would have cleaned up. That was pretty hard to stick a garden hose back together. Or she might have prepared an apology. John's logic is that the coming of God to his world, the the arrival of his rule, should drive us to some kind of action. That makes sense, doesn't it? makes sense to me because if I think about God turning up and examining my life then I'm a hundred percent sure that I've got a problem. There's lots of things in my life that clash with God's rule. Now of course not everyone feels like me, I mean you talk to a lot of people and and they think they're okay with God, they think God's okay with them. It's like they feel that their life matches up with God's rule, you know that faced with God showing up They don't think that there's any action that they would need to take. It surprises me because that's just not my experience of my own life. In our passage, John actually speaks to some people who are a tiny bit like that though. He speaks to some people who feel that they're more or less okay with God's rule. See, while most people are confessing their sins and then being baptised in the Jordan River, in verse 7 we read about a different group of people. Here's a picture of the Jordan River by the way possibly near where the baptism was happening. But look at this group in verse 7. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Jesus, uh, sorry, John, calls these religious people, you know, the good ones. He calls them, you bunch of snakes. He must have been someone who liked a bit of conflict, I reckon. And he says that they've got two problems. One is that their repentance isn't real. It was a fraud because there was no fruit. The other problem, though, is that they presume. They presume that they're cool with God. And for them, they presume they're cool with God because they're children of Abraham. They think they naturally belong to God's kingdom. But John's message and Jesus' message, it was a blanket statement to everyone. Repent. Their message was, if we presume we're okay with God, well, we're wrong. Not one of us should think that our lives match up with God's rule. All of us need to take action. And that action according to both John and Jesus, should be repentance. I don't think repentance comes naturally to many of us. I think um, for many people, we find it hard enough to say sorry, let alone to repent. Have you ever received one of those apologies that goes something like this? I'm sorry, but if you hadn't have dot, 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 
Or in other words, I wish you'd get off my back and stop making me feel bad. It's really your fault after all. Or have you ever got an apology maybe that goes a bit more like this? I'm sorry that you got offended by that. In other words, stop being so sensitive. It's really your problem, not mine. Dry your eyes, princess. Or maybe you've given one of those kind of apologies. I think I certainly have. Probably ask Kathy and know for sure. The reality is we're not great at saying sorry. And here's the thing, repentance is much more than just an apology. It's admitting to yourself and admitting to someone else that there's a problem and then turning around and going in the opposite direction. Repentance doesn't just happen at that one moment in time and then cease to exist. Repentance lives on. John says it produces fruit. The message of both John and Jesus is that every human has a deep problem. And our problem is we're not compatible with the rule of God. What do you think about that? Do you agree? Or how do you feel about that? Does it make you angry? Does it make you sad? Does it make you scared? One thing that it, that it shouldn't do is make us indifferent, bored. Personally, I think you, you take a look around at this world and it's pretty obvious that there's a problem. And it's pretty obvious, I reckon, that it's a problem that can only be explained by the existence of God. See, there's other attempts to understand our world, like humanism, which attaches prime importance to us humans. But it's too positive about us humans. It, it's too optimistic. It thinks that we're going to get things right eventually, when over and over again, we mess things up. Well, then there's naturalism, another attempt where everything arises only from natural properties and causes, but it's too negative because if you follow it through to its logical end, well, humans are no more important than any other part of nature. And in this view, we're worth too little. Christianity gets the balance right and Christianity provides the best logical explanation for what we observe in this world. See, according to the Bible, us humans are made in God's image. We're brilliant, remarkable, often beautiful. And yet we have a problem, a deep darkness within, because we've turned away from what we were created to be. We've made ourselves incompatible with God's rule. Now this has huge implications for how we think about our eternal salvation, as we'll see. Because God doesn't feel okay about us, like we might think. But actually, this has huge implications for our day-to-day as well. See, knowing that there's a darkness that dominates the things we seek, as Mumford and Sons puts it, that's actually an intensely practical thing to know, isn't it? Because when we're annoyed at someone, we'll know that chances are it's not just them. Chances are we're at fault as well. And we'll factor that in and how we respond to them. It means when we see people doing things that we don't approve of, we won't harshly judge them. Because we know that in a different set of circumstances, that could well be us. You know, as the saying goes, something like, but by the grace of God, there go I. It also means 
we won't place ourselves in situations where we could be tempted to do the wrong thing because we'll know we're not immune. In fact, we can be weak and our hearts are more than capable of great darkness. When people admitted that in this chapter, did you see what John did for them? He baptised them. Now, all baptism means is that he immersed them in water. It's not particularly religious. Uh, In one sense, you could baptise your dirty plates. It just meant you were doing the washing up. Jesus, uh, sorry, John here washes people with water and he does it as a sign. But mind you, it's a pretty powerful and when you think about it, a pretty offensive sign. Because it says to us that we have a problem and we need to be cleansed. And the thing is, repentance is not enough, is it? You know, it doesn't make up for what's gone before. It doesn't fix the problem. How could it? So even if my sister had have been repentant about the party, that doesn't magically repair the holes in the carpet or sticky tape the poor hose back together. Even if we're repentant, it doesn't magically fix our problem. John washes people with water to point to an even greater washing that's to come. Look at verse 11, you see it there. He says, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's talking about Jesus the king of God's kingdom. God's rule has come near in Jesus. Jesus was about to do something that John could only ever point to. But if John's saying that in Jesus the Lord has come, you know, in Jesus the kingdom has drawn near, then what's going on in verse 13? Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. You know, if baptism is pointing to the need to be washed the need for the problem to be fixed, why would Jesus need it? Well, John wonders the very same thing, doesn't he, in verse 14. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. What we have here is Jesus accepting a mission. Jesus is baptised not because he has a problem that needs to be fixed, but because he's owning our problem. He's plunging himself into our mess, immersing himself into our incompatibility with God. He's accepting a mission to deal with our greatest problem, our rejection of the rule of God. And we see that the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are all in this mission together. Have a look at verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. If you know your Bible well, then what God says here should resonate with you. What he says here actually echoes of things that he said before in Scripture. Like in Psalm 2 verse 7, about the King of Israel, the Christ, we read, 
I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, and here it is, you are my son. Or in Isaiah 42 verse 1, which we had read before, we read where God says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, and here it is, in whom I delight. In these echoes from Scripture, God's saying that Jesus is the victorious, all-powerful Christ, the King, God's rule come near. And yet, at the same time, God is saying He's the humble, suffering servant we read about in Isaiah, who in Isaiah 53 died for the sins of the people. God is actually declaring Jesus to be both, both His rule come near and the one to overcome our incompatibility with that rule. Jesus' road to victory is a road that winds through service, humility and suffering. There are no shortcuts. Jesus here has accepted the mission to be the servant king, the one who owns humanity's greatest problem and will overcome it. What happens next is that the devil actually tempts Jesus to adopt a different understanding of his sonship. So he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, then, see, he's tempting him to redefine this sonship, redefine it from humble service to to instead being self-seeking. First, he wants him to use his position to serve himself, turn these stones into bread, Then he wants him to use his position to glorify himself. Throw yourself down off the temple. Show off. Show everyone how great you are. Instead of being the obedient, humble servant, son of God, the devil tempts Jesus to take the easy road to glory. And you see this most clearly in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. But Jesus, unlike any human who had gone before him or who has come since, didn't take the easy road to self-glorification. Verse 10, Jesus said to, to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. Jesus owns our problem, but he doesn't suffer from it. Unlike any other human, he doesn't put his interests above the rest or above God. Adam and Eve in the garden, they they grasped at equality with God when they took the fruit. And every one of us who's followed since has done the same. Rather than take the road of humility and service, we've taken the easy road of self-rule. But Jesus even though he actually has equality with God, he doesn't grasp at it. He takes on our humanity and our problem, and though he doesn't suffer from our problem, he suffers for it. And suddenly in history there's something new, something unheard of, something that holds incredible promise that the darkness within us all can finally be overcome. A human has chosen the hard road of humility, of self-sacrifice, of pain, in perfect obedience to God. What follows this incredible moment is really significant. 
because Jesus starts to call out a people. Have a look in verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. See, Jesus is the beloved and obedient Son of God. He's unique, but he's also representative. By owning our problem and overcoming our problem, he can gather a people together who will belong to God, who can sit comfortably under his rule, despite their failures who can come to God as sons and daughters because of Jesus, the humble, self-sacrificing Son of God. Next week, we begin our series on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches these followers that he's calling what it means to be sons and daughters of God. But before we finish today, and before we move on next week to start our series in the Sermon on the Mount, where we're going to slow down a bit, We need to be sure that we are one of these sons and daughters of God if we're going to get the most out of next week and the weeks after. And so it's worth us just stopping and saying, are we okay with God? John and and Jesus would say to us and to everyone that our lives are not compatible with the rule of God. And they would say that that should drive us to action, repentance, to place our hope in Jesus and his mission to deal with our problem. Have you done that? Over the whole of Matthew, we see that ultimately Jesus' mission to overcome our problem takes him to the cross to die in our place to overcome the darkness within us. So let me ask you where you're up to in your journey with God. Which one of these best represents where you're at? Are you still at the point of not realizing or not believing that there's a problem? Or have you realised that there's a problem but you don't yet believe there's a solution? Or are you up to the point where you've realised that Jesus is the solution but you're just not yet ready to listen to his call? Or has your journey brought you to the point that John and, and Jesus have been talking about where you're ready to repent, to turn to Jesus and turn away from self-rule? For most of us here, we started that journey, probably for many of us, years and years ago. But even still, we continue turning away from self-rule and turning to Jesus, bearing fruit as sons and daughters of God. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, as we'll see. Where are you up to on your journey? Are you ready to take the next step? Come and talk with me and pray with me afterwards if you are. And let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and just how remarkable he is. That he, as a human being, was obedient to you completely. That he was willing to take the road of humiliation and suffering in order to own our problem and to overcome it so that he could call us to be a people, your people. Lord, we thank you that even though he is fully God, he was willing to lower himself like this, in obedience to you 
and for our salvation. Lord, help us to recognise the deep problem within us all that drove Jesus to do this. Lord, help us to do more than just recognise it or feel sorry for it, but to turn away from our rejection of you and to turn to Christ completely. Lord, we've done that, many and many of us here. Help us to keep turning away from self-rule and keep turning to you in trust and obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.